Welcome back to the Gutsiest Brands podcast, the show built around understanding the DNA of gutsy brands by talking to the world's most innovative brand leaders. At Gut Check, we make it our business to understand brands. And over the years, we've learned that gutsy brands have a lot of common factors. In fact, we've identified four primary criteria to help us measure a gutsy brand. We feature brands that are empathetic, pioneering, bold, and demonstrate what we call the power of and, those that see opportunity where others force trade-offs. When we find a brand leader that we think embodies gutsiness, we invite them to the show to explore what makes them so successful, what drives them every day, and to get their perspective on other brands rising to the ranks of gutsy. In today's episode, Gut Check CEO and Springsteen superfan Rob Wangle sits down to chat with Joel Bynes. Joel is managing director and co-head of the global retail practice at the business consulting firm Alex Partners. He's widely regarded as one of the world's leading operational strategists and has a 30-year track record of improving performance at retailers, brands, and consumer companies. Joel is also the author of The Me-Tail Economy, a book on business strategies to thrive in the me-centric consumer revolution. Let's listen in as Rob and Joel discuss the me-tail economy and dig into what the me-centric consumer revolution actually is. We'll learn what kinds of changes brands need to make in order to thrive in this revolution. Hey, Joel. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. So um, just about 20 years ago, there was a book written called Hug Your Customer. Mm -hmm. It was by Jack Mitchell, who's the CEO of a high-end Connecticut uh, clothing retailer. And as I was kind of thinking about you and what you've been working on, a lot of his themes and experiences really kind of resonated. And I think your book captures that plus a lot more in a modern take if you will, on, on uh, a lot of what he was speaking about and how he's grown this incredible set of stores in Connecticut. I had him speak at a conference once and uh, my CEO felt obligated to walk up and give Jack a hug because the <laughs> book was called Hug Your Customer. Yeah. In your case, given that your book puts the focus on me, we're not going to talk about me. We'd actually like to understand your me. So uh, I really feel obligated not to hug you as my customer, but to <laughs> at, play into the theme of me and make sure we learn a little about who Joel is. So to start off, tell us a little about who you are, your background, and the yeah. motivation for your book. I'd be happy to, um, it, but I also want to put this caveat in that if we are talking about hugging customers, we're only speaking metaphorically about the hug these days, just to just to be clear. <laughs> and so, um, look, wh what is there to say about me? I, I'm a kind of a somewhat blue collar kid that grew up in suburban Massachusetts in the seventies and early eighties. And when you were doing that, you needed spending money. You could work in restaurants or you could work in retail. And I didn't really like touching other people's half eaten hamburgers. So I worked in retail and I started customer facing retail jobs as a teenager. Um, you know, I had a paper route, which wasn't very customer facing when I was a kid, but like I've worked really since you could work, um, held every variety of job you could hold always been very curious about how consumers worked and how retail worked and everything else. I fell into retail post-college um, and post-MBA, spent the first half of my career working for retailers on 
um, you know, really complex operational problems. And then I met a guy named Jay Alex, who's a, a real legend in the, in the turnaround space. And uh, Jay, this is about 20 years ago, Jay was talking about building kind of the uncola of consultancies. It was uh, going to be a management consulting firm filled with people who actually knew what they were doing, which was kind of unique at the time and is <laughs> still sort of unique. Uh, so experienced people rather than very smart, but totally inexperienced college grads um, working on problems. And, uh, and that's what he did. And it was really intriguing to me. And I joined um, almost 19 years ago. And, and that's where I've been. The common thread for me, I look after the global retail practice at Alex Partners. The common thread is I've never stopped having a dialogue with consumers. And, you know, you asked a little bit about the origin of the book. It was one of those just slap on the forehead V8 moments where I realized exactly what had happened to the consumer. You know, the, all the stuff that we used to do just wasn't working as effectively. And I listened to everybody tell me that it was all about e-commerce or it was all about personalization or digital marketing. And those all felt like tactics to me. They didn't feel like anything really fundamental or strategic. And then this concept, which sounds fairly simple, but I think has a little bit of nuance and complexity, which hopefully we'll draw out, is this idea of a power inversion. You know, you and I grew up in a world where by and large, the power rested with the companies um, and not the consumers. I say they had power, that agency, but, but not choice. It was just much too hard. And today it's so easy for consumers to exercise that choice um, they, because they have this power. So anyway, I came to that realization, the idea of the word metail popped into my head and I thought it sounded somewhat catchy. Um, and then I, I did what a lot of people do, which is I stupidly decided I was going to write a book. <laughs> and three and a half years later, here we are. Since so many people have written books, why? Why write? Why tell the story? It's just, it's so strange. I, you know, I know what my answer to this question is, but nobody believes that this is the answer. But I've spent almost 40 years, pretty much if you go back to high school jobs, working with consumer facing businesses and working with consumers. And Tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world, make their job in the consumer economy in one way, shape, or form, whether it's farmers growing food or manufacturers making product or people in the supply chain. It's probably hundreds of millions, actually, now that I think about it. And it's important to me that that industry continues to thrive. This felt like a fundamental enough change to me that I first wanted to make sure that that it actually was. So I did a lot of research and testing the idea and so forth. And when I did, I kind of decided that it should be me that says it, and then we'll see whether anybody would listen, you know, and, and people say, oh, you're a consultant. You just wrote a book to sell consulting work, or, you know, you did it because you, you have some, you know, self-aggrandizing gene or whatever. And none of that could be further from the truth. I just had some stuff to say, and I wanted to put it out there. And it turns out that a lot of people find that it resonates with them. So that's been a nice surprise. So I'm going to jump ahead and then bring us back. Okay. And the place I'm going to jump ahead to first because I, I do want to get to the premise of the book and, and the key themes. But one of the things that stood out to me is you, you talk about there have been lots of disruptions over centuries uh, of retailing, but the, you see the past decade is a revolution, not just a disruption. Correct. That's a, a pretty big assertion. Talk, yeah. talk about that. Let me set it up first by, by saying that anybody that has been in and around the consumer economy for a long time has heard the word revolution bandied about over and over and over again. But to me, a revolution is a real uprising. And what we have in the retail economy is we have a consumer uprising. 
So it fits the definition of a revolution. And when you backtest that against things like the advent of e-commerce or the superstore or going back to the Sears catalog, they all those were were things that disrupted the traditional way of doing something. But it didn't change anything about it. I, I say in the book, choosers chose. They chose the products. They chose the prices. They chose the format and the method for selling them to consumers. And consumers either bought or didn't buy. But it was always unidirectional. And so each disruption, the suburban mall, the superstore, the category killer, e-commerce, whatever it is, those definitely disrupted the industry but they didn't change anything fundamental about the relationship between the companies and the customers. And then about 10 years ago, because of technology, but not technology itself, consumers began to be able to access information in a way that they'd never been able to access before. They began to access the industry in a way they've never been able to, and they began to access each other. One of the things I say in my book is, you know, for generations, if you were going to make a large purchase, you would turn to consumer reports for advice. And today you turn to consumers' reports for advice. And that kind of crystallizes it for a lot of people. So, so for me, um, you know, I take some heat for saying this is the only true revolution, but I, I defend it by basically saying this has completely inverted something that had basically operated only one way for millennia. So when John Wanamaker, said when a customer enters my store forget me he is king yep and many after have said customers king customers queen yep. we're customer centric what's the real inversion what makes this any different so this is my my response to that question which comes up a lot is tell me how often you as a consumer feel like you are king or queen and that's sort of the mic drop right because until 10 years ago it didn't make any difference whether they treated you like a king or a queen because you didn't have any choice. You had agency, but you had no power. Now you have, as a consumer, you have agency and power to the point, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is upset consumers can actually become competitors now, right? So there's, I talk about this company called Lolly Wally Doodle, which is a real company. And this is a woman who couldn't find the right kind of clothes that she wanted for her children anywhere. So she was able to connect with a supplier in Asia. She was able to start making clothes. She sold them on Facebook groups. Then people really liked them. And then she started a company. And now she's competing with all the people. So if she were really queen, she would have been able to talk to somebody and get what she needed. But she wasn't. You know, there's a, there's a cartoon. I use this in my speeches. Um, and if anybody from the Wall Street Journal is listening, I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble because I don't have the rights to it. But there's a cartoon called Pepper and Salt, which is in the Wall Street Journal. It's been there sure. forever. I tore something out of Pepper and Salt probably 20 years ago, and I've kept it with me. And it's a cartoon of a man standing at a retail counter. And, and the caption says, when you said satisfaction guaranteed, I thought you meant mine. And that's basically what it is. It's just been lip service but it can't be lip service anymore. So that's that's a long-winded answer to the, isn't this just another book saying the customer is always right? I don't think it is. So talk, talk a little bit more about, the, so you, you've given us the foundation that there is an inversion yep. and that information is really the central currency that's enabling it. Right. Talk a little bit more about the, the premise of the book and the how do brands and, and retailers compete more effectively in this environment? So I broke the book into three sections. The first section makes the case for me tail. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, because we have to first understand what a me 
actually represents in a business context. Otherwise, it's not useful. And there's two elements to it that work in tandem that we need to talk about. The middle part of the book is what I call six C's for uh, building good relationships. But it's, you know, I, I thought it was kind of catchy. And, but I, I, I sort of thought about it and everything that I wanted to say is contained in those. And, and I, I am very clear to stress that they are ingredients, not the recipe. So every company will need to figure out their own recipe. But these are the six ingredients that you can use to build long-term relationships with customers in a retail economy. And then the last part of the book is kind of how you should, how do you think about going through this journey? Not, not in the usual kind of consulting book methodology. It's not a step-by-step guide by any stretch of the imagination, but it sort of talks about how you set your North Star in a retail world and so forth. So let's take those three things in, in chunks and I'll, I'll, I'll do the first chunk and then we can talk about it if you want, or we can move on. So the first chunk of the, of the book is really um, about defining what a me is and why it matters. And, and the best way to think about it is if you go back even 15 years ago, consumers behaved largely in semi-reliable demographic cohorts. You could, you could create a business, identify your core customers, search for lookalikes, target that demographic, and pretty reliably have some success. Because of technology, those demographics have fractured and fragmented and fragmented and fragmented until we get down to really demographics of one. And one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, forget about your politics or anything else. Facebook has 71 different gender designations, 71 designations for gender. Now, you and I grew up in a market research world where there were only two. So somewhere between two and 71, again, leaving politics aside, you can see what we're talking about here. That's the fragmentation. So everybody that learned how to target customers has to relearn it because there is no such thing as a demographic. There is only demographics of one. I think I'd, the premise of there's demographic is one of one is it might even be more fragmented because that one operates differently depending on the context. Okay. So that's the second part. As if that wasn't a big enough complication for us to kind of get our brains around as, as, as executives and researchers and marketers and so forth. Um, I introduced the concept of the quantum consumer. Okay. And now you know me, so there's no getting around this. I was a philosophy major at a liberal arts college in Maine. The last science class I took was eighth grade biology. But I have, a, I have a working man's understanding of quantum physics and basically this concept that a particle can exist in two places simultaneously. That's what you have with quantum me's now, which is whether I'm sitting in a Costco gas line because I want to save 18 cents a gallon on gas on my phone, booking an all expenses paid vacation to you know the coast of Mexico or something like that. I'm not. I am not one thing anymore. Now consumers were never one thing, right. but 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 there's they never really had the opportunity to be multiple things simultaneously, which is what you have right now. And so you have this fragmentation of reliable demographics. You have this idea of the quantum consumer, and when you mash them together. To me, the weight of that complexity, when it finally settles in on people, that's when people sort of start nodding and say, okay, I buy it, that this is different. This is a real revolution. 
This is not the way things used to be. This isn't, let's take what we used to use and do it online. Let's use banner ads. Okay, banner ads aren't working anymore. Let's use email ads. Okay, email ads aren't working anymore. Let's use influencers. Okay, influencers aren't working anymore. That's just the same stuff, the same way through different methods. This is fundamentally different and we have to rethink how we capture customers in that environment. Can I challenge one thing on the notion of me and, and fragmentation? Yeah. Aren't we also tribal? Aren't we also, um, because we're in these information vacuums, um, and and whether it's influenced by influencers or influenced by by peers, aren't we still moving in in some subsets and some? It's segments? not a challenge. It's not a challenge at all. I talk a lot about tribalism in the book, and and what you get is you get these uh, affiliations for moments in time, or sometimes for long moments in time. But you but again, you have this quantum nature of affiliations and then new affiliations, and you have you have these you have these adjacencies that are actually not adjacent at all and i can belong to two tribes that might be in complete opposition to one another but as a as a marketer if i can identify the connection between the tribes that have nothing to do with the standard way you would identify them um then then i can really start attracting the thing that's at the base and by the way that's what the sixth c is about which is this sense of community and we could get there when we get there, but uh, yeah, so, that and, tribalism and, is very important to understand in the context of the retail economy. And I do want to get to the six C's in the middle of the book, um, but let me pause just with the uh, the start of the book and the understanding of the revolution and the notion of the importance of information and me. Um, give me a retailer or two who who gets that foundation really well. Yeah. I mean, so again, uh, so you're going to find I do this a lot. So I'll just get it. I'll just get it out of the way. I am not a fan of consultants writing business books. I think that most consultants that write business books take a bunch of loosely connected or largely disconnected anecdotes, build some methodology to them, and then basically say, you know, if you do these things, then you will be successful. And my response to that is that's like my high school basketball coach telling me to go home and work on getting taller. That that's the functional equivalent of consulting business books. So I tried very, very hard not to write that type of book. And the people that read it tell me that, that they see that in it. One of the ways I do that is I actually talk about retailers by name who are doing things well and by name who are doing things not well. And that's, you don't see that because, you know, that most people want to sell work to everybody or whatever it is that they write their books for, but you've known me for a long time. That's not me. So um, it's easy for me to talk about these things. So the, the absolute best example of a retailer that we have in the last decade is Target, hands down, bar none. And the reason for it is you can, first of all, compare Target's strategy with Walmart's strategy over the same period of time, and we can contrast them if you want. But you can also see how difficult it was at the time to set off on a retail journey and how important it was that that journey was set off. And so a lot of people won't remember, but if you go back 10 or 15 years, um, not 15, but 10 years, when Brian Cornell took over Target, he kind of assessed everything. Wall Street didn't like anything that was going on. And Brian said, well, we're going to go invest tens of billions of dollars in our stores. We're going to buy a last mile delivery company. We're going to put a bunch of money into our associates. We're going to put a bunch of money in our stores. And Wall Street puked all over it. Stock got crushed. Everyone said he was crazy. He's chasing the old customer and this, that, and the other thing. 
cut to 10 years, it target in the last 10 years, forget about the pandemic success, but just in the last 10 years, it's been one of the most successful retailers on a performance basis of any retailer in any recent memory. And when Brian gets asked, he doesn't do interviews, so you know it's hard, but when he gets asked, how did he know that that was the right strategy? His answer is, we asked our customers. That's what our customers told us. And the difference between, and we're going to hopefully get to this when we talk about gutsiness, but the difference between Brian and virtually every other retail CEO of that era is he knew that that was his North Star. His customers were telling him what he needed, and he had the guts to stay with it. Now, you contrast that with Walmart, who basically spent the last 10 years making a, a wild array of completely unstrategic and disconnected um, acquisitions of direct-to-consumer internet businesses, and then they've unwound them all. And so, you know, under the theory that if you buy all these companies, somehow that DNA is going to, through osmosis, enter your massive multi-hundred billion dollar slow to change mothership. And that's just silly. That's not how you do it. You do it by deciding what your North Star is. And now they've pulled back. They're launching Store of the Future. They're investing in their associates, but they're 10 years too late. So I'm right. not saying that Walmart's going to fail. They're not going to fail, but they, right. they spent the last 10 years chasing the wrong strategy. I'm very explicit about that in the book. So, so for people that want to read the book, you're going to find some, some interesting stories of, of good, but also some interesting stories of not so good. So talk about the six C's a little bit. Well, so um, at the, at like, so to start, I, what I want to want to be clear about, and I said this earlier, but I just want to reinforce it as we move into that section is the six C's are ingredients. This is like the great retail baking show. All of us have the same basket and it has six ingredients in it. And each of us as business owners and business leaders can choose which to use and in what amounts. Okay. Because you, you know, your customers know, and you know, with your customers, what the right recipe is to cook something tasty, not to take the analogy too far. But for me to sort of say, well, these are the six C's and this is what you do. Like, that's what I don't like about business books. So, um, so you have cost, you have convenience, you have category expertise, you have curation, customization, and community. So those are the six C's. And uh, we could take them individually. We could jump around. We could just ignore them and move on. You, you tell me what you'd, you'd like to do. Is there a weighting to the six? I know you that's, just said they're, they're ingredients. But nope. There is, but your weighting is going to be different than my weighting and, and the next company and the next company. But, but the first step is to step back and say, is there anything missing? So someone would say customer service. Isn't that a C? And what I would say is, no, not really. I know plenty of businesses that have terrible customer service and have incredibly good customer loyalty. And I use examples of uh, retailers in the book. There's a story I tell in the book. I don't want to give everything away because I want people to buy the book. But there's a story I tell in the book about an eponymous a women's clothing store in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Tess. And um, my wife has been shopping there since we found her in 1999. And, and uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. You can read it in the book. But one of the anecdotes that I use in the book is that my wife was trying on a pair of jeans in the dressing room and Tess, you know, said, wear these jeans. And my Audrey was having a little trouble getting them zipped up and buttoned. And she said, Tess, these are too small. They don't fit. And Tess's response was try harder. <laughs> So, you know, that's not exactly customer service. You well, know? She's married to you, Joel. <laughs> yes, so. I know. I know. She, well, she's had to try very hard her whole life. So, yes. But do you want to just sort of, do you want to do like a high level, you yeah, know, around the diamond let's, on them? Let's go around the horn. Okay. Even though so, there are six, six bases, not four. 
Yeah. Well, I meant diamond like six C's and four C's and all that kind of stuff, but whatever. It's fine. Yes. Baseball diamond is baseball season. Actually. I love that. So the first one is cost. This one, we don't have to spend a lot of time on. The important point about cost is it used to be much easier to compete as a cost based retailer because basically nobody knew you, 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 it was just too hard to compare prices and everything else. Well, today, not only are prices pretty transparent, but sources of supply are transparent, where it's manufactured is transparent, how it gets there is. So like there is no hiding cost. And so all I say is if cost is going to be one of your elements, just know that cost means cost now. Cost doesn't mean value. Cost doesn't mean anything other than cost. If you're going to be the lowest cost, be the lowest cost. If you're not going to be the lowest cost or you want to be near the lowest cost, don't delude yourself into thinking that you're the lowest cost. The next one is convenience. One of the ways that I juxtapose, I mean, one of, not juxtapose, one of the ways I talk about convenience is to juxtapose two, two stories. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to talk to you about two stories. So what I say about convenience is convenience means convenient for your customer. It does not mean convenience for you. That doesn't mean that a customer convenience can't also be a company benefit. But if you start with a customer convenience and try to turn it into a company benefit, then you've lost your way. So just know if you're going to compete on convenience, it's convenient for the customer. But here's a perfect example of a convenience for the customer that is also a benefit for the business. And I, I, I use Costco a lot uh, throughout the book, and I also use Costco a lot just in general. It's, I'm, I, it's a retailer that I really admire. We've all filled up our cars with gas. Hopefully in 20 years, no one listening to this will have any idea what that means. But you pull up to the gas station. I drive a 14-year-old car. I still forget what side of the car my gas tank is on. And forget about the embarrassment, but just the logistical challenge of backing up and going around and all that other kind of stuff. It's just kind of a pain. And every single gas station that I've ever been to in the entire world, the gas hose is the same length until Costco came along and they created these extra long gas hoses. So it doesn't matter what side of the car I pull up on. I never have to worry. I just swing it around. I plug it in. I fill up my car with gas. I drive off. That's a real convenience to me. That spares me the embarrassment of being like, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot what side of the car my gas tank is on. But now think about it from Costco's perspective. When you don't have company cars jockeying for position and turning around, the throughput from their gas lanes increases dramatically. They're selling more gas to more cars in less time. Is that what they call a win-win? That is a win-win. <laughs> so in our next episode, I'll tell you about the little arrow that's on every single car gas gauge to tell you which side <laughs> you fill up on, which I is am... an innovation a friend of mine did at Ford. But go ahead. <laughs> no kidding. Actually, that's fascinating. And I love it. And I refer to it from time to time. But then I still forget. What a genius. Can you imagine being the guy that came up with the little arrow? That's just great. And I can't believe you know him. So anyway. Um, But let me give you an example of what I see companies do all too often. And let's talk about Kohl's. So about seven or eight years ago, when Kohl's announced that they were going to start taking Amazon returns, the entire retail community went bananas. What are you kidding me? They're a competitor. How are you going to do it? Whatever. It was genius. Absolutely genius. Because basically what Kohl's was saying to their customers is, we care more about you than we care about us. And we know that if we can combine two trips into one, that convenience is going to have real benefit to you. And they tested it and it was off the charts and customers loved it. Why did customers love it? Because the Amazon return desk was the first thing you saw when you walked into the test stores right off of the front doors to the store. Before you go around the racetrack, it was sitting there for you. 
So now what do you think happened? I don't know what strategy firm they were working for, but you can imagine whether it was they you know, moved it to the back of the store. So you have they to are all the sitting around with these, you know, 24 year olds with their shiny laptops, running all these numbers, talking about things like attach rate. And they say, this is great. But if we get customers to go all the way to the back of the store, the likelihood that they'll buy something on the way out is much higher. And then they ran a bunch of numbers and they presented their fancy consulting charts and graphs and convinced everybody that was a smart room. So when they rolled it out chain wide, they put the desks in the back of the store and customers stopped using it because they took a convenience and they turned it into a total inconvenience. And worse than that, they made it so obvious to their customers that it was bait, right? And there's a million other ways you can think about this. So you have buy online, pick up in store, huge customer convenience. How many times have you bought a product online, gone to the store to pick it up, and noticed that the pickup desk is at the customer service desk because operationally it makes more sense and whatever? Right. So now you go to the customer service desk and there's six people in line in front of you trying to return previously opened packs of bananas and soda and you know some Barca lounger, right? Like that's not convenient. That is incredibly right. inconvenient. So next time I'm just going to have you ship it to my store, which actually costs you more money. So like you, sh- anyway, so this is the point about the convenience chapter. And I'm right. obviously very, 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 very passionate about this convenience chapter because I think convenience is something that every retailer can offer, whether you need to or not. It's, it's right. very, it's very engineerable if you if you start with your customers and work backwards. Okay, the next one is category expertise. Category expertise is um, essentially what I say is you don't have to know the answer to every question, but you know you have to know how to find the answer to every question. And the contrast that I make in the book, one of many, is about I have a neighborhood hardware store in Dallas called Elliott's Hardware. You can walk into Elliott's Hardware with a a tiny little piece of metal that popped off of something in your house and someone is going to know exactly what it is and also which tiny little drawer in aisle 19 that those things are in and it's 35 cents and there you go they don't charge you know it's not like it's 350 dollars because they're the only people in town that have it it's just they compete on expertise and there's a lot of other places Murray's cheese shop in new york and we all know the category expert model so the key if you're going to be a category expert is you have to invest in your frontline associates, absolutely have to invest in retaining that knowledge and that know-how and making it accessible to their consumers. And if you think about like category expertise a little bit more broadly, um, it doesn't have to be that your entire operation is category expert, but let's say you're a natural grocer and you have a health and wellness section. That's a complicated section. That's a place you walk into and it's single facings of a bunch of brown bottles that all look basically the same and all pretty much do the same thing. And so if you don't have a category expert there, then you have to ask yourself, why are you in the health and wellness business? Or if you're in the health and wellness business and you don't want to have a category expert there, you got to rethink your assortment. And so that's the type of stuff we go through in the book. Can I jump around for a second? Yeah, of course. So as you're you're going through the seas, it it makes me think of the the shopping missions. Um, Yep. And we all have various shopping missions. Yeah. So how do this and the shopping missions you know, will range from just uh, you know, the, the destination purpose. I need to go do a fill-in shopping trip or I need to uh, buy something in particular. I need to go get that piece of metal at Elliott's to um, I need to reward myself and treasure hunts and everything in between. Yep. How, how do these connect to all the different shopping missions? 
you're going to have to wait for my next book. That's exactly what the next book is going to be about is how do you connect shopping missions to the retail consumer? So um, that's the short answer. The long answer is I actually don't know yet. <laughs> so I'm working that out right now. Uh, maybe we should write the book together because we, you're, an expert wanna... on, you're an expert on shopping missions. So um, maybe we should do that together. We could talk about that after the podcast. We, this will be the next, next episode. Yeah, fine. No problem. But we can write a book live on podcast. That would be actually... You know what? I bet people would really tune into that podcast. Although having written a book, I can tell you it is intensely boring. It does not make for good podcast material. And, and, and what prompted me to bring that up was the notion of category expertise. Because if category expertise is one of the anchors that someone really builds their strategic difference on, there's probably a destination element to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whereas where convenience and cost, there might be completely different reasons that you're shopping um, for that. So totally customization. Right. What I basically what I say is it doesn't have to be bespoke. You just ha it has to be N plus one. And what I mean by that is you have to offer at least one more choice than your customers need in order to think that the product is being customized. That's all. And and again, because of technology, particularly advances in manufacturing, it's never been easier manufacturing, packaging, and so forth, it has never been easier to offer a customized solution to your customers. Now, it may not matter for you in your particular business, for someone in their particular business. Right. But if you do think that your, your customers value some element of being able to customize their product for themselves, you can offer the ability to customize a product without having every single one actually manufactured by itself. I use an example of a company called Jay Hilburn that I happen to buy my clothes from. And I know my dress shirts aren't made by hand by someone, but they're customized to my specifications. You know, the left left sleeves a little wider because I like to wear my watch on my left or whatever it is. You, 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 that's enough for me. And most businesses have enough, but that's what customization is about. Is there a scaled company that's doing customization well? Nike probably is the best company at scale. I mean, that's, that's, I, I, it's interesting. I hadn't been asked that question before, so I'll have to give it a little bit more thought, but Nike clearly jumps to the, the top of the heap for me. Did you um, view Stitch Fix as customization? I view Stitch Fix more as curation and category expertise. Yeah. Got it. Um, I have a, uh, I have a really good idea for Stitch Fix. If they would give me a call that would help them revolutionize their business in a very easy way that I don't want to give away on air. We'll, we'll, we'll point this podcast to them. Yeah, let's do that. Stitch Fix is um, one, they're really one idea away from absolutely nailing the whole reason that they exist. Call me. I'm easy to find. So, so I did kind of jump us to curation. Yeah. Well, no. So that's, so that's customization. Curation, this one is actually worth spending a little bit of time on. So curation equals obsession. You cannot be a curator without being obsessed about every single part of your offering, the experience, the environment, the associates, the product, the pricing, the music, the smells, everything, the, lo the, the location that the actual store is in or not, online, offline. Um, and by, by default, that means you're choosing a set of customers, which means you're choosing not to have other customers. They're welcome to shop with you, but you are curating for someone. And now there are multiple someones, hopefully, so you can be in business. But the caution that I give in that chapter is curation is very hard. This is exactly the question you asked me on customization. Very hard to deliver at scale. 
extremely difficult to deliver at scale because the farther away you get from the founder's obsession, the harder it is to deliver consistent curation. And um, it, just to save you the question, the best example of an at-scale curator, and I talk about this in the book, is Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren was able to curate a certain lifestyle. I've never even seen a polo field, much less beyond a polo field. But you know, he's curated an entire lifestyle from furniture to wallpaper to clothing to tchotchkes and bric-a-brac and everything in between. And then chasing growth, they started selling a ton of stuff wholesale and they diluted the brand. And now they're trying to pull back and see if they can get that curator back. And we'll see. The, you know, it's the jury is out. So curation is the, the whole. So it's not just the assortment. It is, it's the entire bundle. Correct. It is, you are not a curator. Experience. Correct. You are not a curator if the only thing you think you're curating is product. Community. Well, community, we talked about earlier. Community is tribes. And um, communities ebb and flow but they are extremely difficult to create and extremely easy to destroy. And so if you do fancy this ingredient and you want to um, have an element of community in your business, you have to obsess over the community and over the decisions of the community. And you cannot be swayed by political wins and you cannot be swayed by things outside of your community and you have to stay true to your community's core values at all times, because the community will abandon you in a heartbeat if you don't. All right, so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna move us to a lightning round. Oh, okay. As you and I spoke prior to this, you, you kind of said, well, we can talk about the six C's if you want, or the four pillars of Gutsy as brands, you know, are, are similar, there, there's a yeah. DNA. And, so I'm going to go through the four pillars of Gutsy's brands, okay. but go through the lens of your view of retail and consumer businesses and ask you the first retailer or brand that comes to mind when I share our pillars. Okay. Leading with empathy. Patagonia and REI. Tell me more. Well, let's just stick with Patagonia because we'll just stay with one. It's just easier that way. But not to say that this doesn't apply to REI. Every, everything that Patagonia does demonstrates empathy, empathy for its associates, empathy for the environment, empathy for its customers. Uh, they make very obvious, I don't mean obvious, like, like, no, like, duh. I mean, obvious, like clear choices that are empathetic. Well, you know, closing their closing, not just their stores, closing their distribution center over the Thanksgiving holiday. That for that, for example, I mean, that's a mundane thing, but, um, but choosing not to sell their products to certain people, companies, and other things. You know, if you want to get a Patagonia fleece and you're, uh, you know, some environmental polluter, you're going to have to buy it on the gray market. You're, you're not going to buy it right. from Patagonia for your next offsite or whatever. So what you're saying could actually fit another one, but we'll, we'll skip through. Okay. Uh, pioneering new paths. How about restoration hardware? Aren't they now, aren't they RH? Yeah, RH, but I still, you know, I, it's old, old habits die hard. I mean, they're not even, what are they? Are they a retailer? Are they a property developer? Are they a municipality? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's just, what are they? It's, 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 this is, they are, they are, they are creating something that at least that I haven't seen before. I mean, you know, there's, 
there's lifestyle brands, but I don't know. I just, I think they're charting a new path. And they're one who built it out of bankruptcy. Yeah. So once someone's led with empathy, pioneered new paths, we really suggest it's critical that they then stand behind those bold ideas with confidence. Yeah. And, and sometimes weathering the storm and critics and so forth. That's why I started to go to Patagonia, Got really it. standing firm. But besides, besides Patagonia, who stands out to you standing behind bold ideas? Well, I talk about Glossier in the book. Um, and I think that they're going through a little bit of, you know, you, when you write a book, you write it at a moment in time. And um, right after the book came out, they announced some very disappointing results and, you know, they are sort of falling a little bit out of favor. And so I, they've been gutsy. I assume they're going to continue to be gutsy and not listen to all the pundits telling them they need to cut costs or do whatever it is. And they, they'll, they'll stand true to it. But I, I think that that's probably a pretty good example. They were bold to begin with and they've remained bold. Yeah, and, and you, you've already used the target example, but as I was listening to you talk about the decisions Brian made um, that were, you know, took a financial hit for a short term and, and definitely took a stock price hit yeah, uh, are really great examples of he knew what he wanted and he stood behind it and it paid off. Yeah, uh, very much. We talk about the power man, that where a lot of people see trade-offs, um, certain brands and companies really kind of seize the opportunity. Any that uh, stand out to you who skip past the trade-offs? I mean, besides Amazon, right? I mean, who Apple maybe is another one. Um, although the Apple in-store experience is just so bad that it's 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 amazing. But um, but they 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 do a lot of and in their in their retail channel. But I, I think Amazon is the purest example of you know basically if it's a good idea, it doesn't matter if it disrupts a previously held good idea. It's, it's this and that. I'm going to take you down a different path now. Sure. Um, there's so many different segments and formats, but what, what are you observing? I'm going to throw out a couple different uh, categories of retail okay. and talk a little about what you're observing and, and how it connects to the retail economy. Okay. Um, home DIY stores, Home Depot's, Lowe's, your neighborhood hardware store. Yeah. What are you observing and who's doing it well? Um, well, the observation is, is, is that they finally got the message that for them, it's got to be customer journey first and product second. The second thing is they've realized how important the, the contractor is to their business again. And, and it's hard sometimes to be a retailer who also wants to be a B2B player. Um, and I don't think they've figured it out. Who's doing it well? I, you know, honestly, McGuckin's in Colorado is the one that's doing it the best. That's not a big chain, but it's, you know, it's bigger than Elliott's hardware. And that's because they have the superstore model, but they also have the expertise model. And it's a nice blend. And they've been able to scale pretty nicely that way. I, I doubt very many people have ever been to a McGuckin's, but I would recommend that they try it if they, if they haven't. And hasn't Home Depot hired more people with expertise to work in their aisles. And the challenge with that is it takes a very long time to change consumer perceptions. And, and if they really and truly are going to commit to being a category expert, then they have to find a different way for people to experience the change than just walking in the store, looking for a light bulb. 
And I'm not sure that they've fully, completely decided how they're going to. I think they think that expertise is important, but I'm not sure that they've decided exactly how they're going to change their operating model so that the expertise is more front-footed and 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 the customer becomes more aware of it more quickly. Would you argue that what Best Buy did could serve as a model? I wouldn't argue it. I I I explicitly say so. I mean, Hubert Jolie is literally the quote on the cover of my book. So um, you're getting no argument from me. That's the perfect example of understanding how complex their category was and how their only ability to compete was on expertise and what that required to invert it, invest back in the stores, invest back in the brands. Um, and it was just a humongous success. I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Hubert's. Grocery and everyday products, whether it's, you know, you've talked about Target, obviously, but well, Target, mass, yeah. merchant, mass merchant, merchants, drugstores, CVS, Walgreens, grocery. What are you observing there? Um, and is there someone leaning into one or more of the six C's in a way that stands out and is beneficial? The challenge with talking about mass is we talk about mass or grocery um, as though it's a, you know, but it, it's thing. just, it's so, it's very hard to talk about even grocery, much less mass, because like there's so many different ways you can deliver mass products. You have an Ollie's, which is actually a discounter, but they're also sort of mass because they've created essentially a discounter on mass scale. You have, of course, Target, Walmart, and then in grocery, there's so many different formats. There's hard discounters, there's high service, there's organic. There's, you know, it's just, it's, you'd have to break every segment down to sort of have a, I think a meaningful conversation about it. Uh, you know, obviously we talk about Wegmans in the book because who doesn't, but you know, if you lump convenience stores in there. So what does, what does Wegmans do that stands out? It's just pure expertise. It's just category expertise along with curated product. Um, you know, it's just a completely different experience and it's built intense loyalty. It's the same thing for Wawa in the convenience store space. They they have really overcommitted to that type of an environment that customers, they want to shop there. You don't shop there just because you happen to stop there for gas. Bucky's is another example of a, a company that if you, if you don't live in the South, you you may not know what Bucky's is, but Bucky's is, I call it a truck stop, but it's not a truck stop because trucks aren't allowed. It is a car stop. And, and people actually plan their road trips around where the Bucky's are to stop there. It's a, just a brilliant delivery of a concept. And it's just, I, I talk about Five Below in the book, kind of completely reinventing the dollar store channel because they had one silly or not silly idea, which was, I wonder if we sell stuff for five bucks. That was it. It's an easy way to satisfy and entertain my kids. Yeah. It's, it's, and it gives them a huge range of products to be able, a different products to be able to sell in that store. And it doesn't limit them. And now they have five beyond, which is going above the $5 price point. And so you're never really locked into anything as long as your true North is the customers that you want to attract and that you start with what they need first and then work backwards. So the, uh, talk to me, do you have a perspective on uh, Google and Google shopping and where, where it fits and where it could fit? I mean, it's an, it, it, Google, I don't, I think there's some people that worry that, that Google is going to become Amazon. I don't think that will ever happen. And I think that Google shopping is a tactic. I think Google shopping is, is um, it's very convenient for customers. It presents an alternative uh, to an Amazon store, but it is not a solution for anybody. It's not going to, it's not going to solve anything. And it hasn't. 
deciding whether or not to be on a Google shop is not going to change anything about your relationship with your consumers. You still are going to have to give them one of the C's of why they would be shopping at you at, at some point. I'm not somebody that worries too much about sort of to outsourcing too much to companies like Amazon or Google or anything like that. I just think that's the way of the world. You want to be where the customers are for most businesses, businesses that want to scale. Given that you you argue that information really is the central point that's allowed the inversion, yeah, is there an argument that Google is as well positioned as anyone to make um, uh, a bigger stand in this space? I mean, it's certainly possible. I, I I've never even had a meeting at Google. I don't think I've ever met anyone who works at Google, so I actually have no idea what they're thinking. Um, it's theoretically possible. I'd have to think more about it. I'm not necessarily sure that they want to become an information aggregator. I think their advantage is they actually aren't. They're, you know, saloon doors as opposed to like, you know, velvet rope. But I don't know. Maybe the case could be made the other way. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that a little more. You do talk about digitally native brands, direct consumer brands, and the movement to brick and mortar. When I first saw some of the biggest and most successful digitally native brands do that. I started to say that that's where they go downhill. That you know, when Peloton starts to invest in real estate and having to operate stores, um, it just adds. It feels like it adds an enormous cost and a level of complexity. But I think you argue that it's really valuable um, to those companies. Talk a little bit more about that. It can be really valuable. It's not. It's not black and white. But for most direct-to-consumer businesses, at some point, the curve of customer acquisition costs starts to steepen to a place where you need to find another way for people to discover you and interact with your products. And to, to date, there's been no better model for doing that than a brick-and-mortar store. Um, there's a lot that goes behind it. It's very important that it's part of the overall journey. You want to make sure that as if, especially if you're D2C and you're moving into brick and mortar, that you do everything to integrate the customer experience. You don't wind up with what we've seen a million times, which is separate channels or separate data or you know whatever. They have an advantage because they're building it on relatively modern right. tech stacks. But it, it 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 can be a competitive advantage. It can also you know it can also become a, a lodestone if you're not careful. So you know Peloton is a, an example of a, a cautionary tale, but. But that doesn't mean that their stores themselves weren't a good idea. And look at Tesla, right? Before Tesla started selling cars in malls, like nobody, everybody, as soon as they opened their first showroom in a, in, you know, in a high-end mall, people thought they were crazy, but they knew what they were doing. Exactly. Um, well, they were battling the distributor model and the dealer model. They had, they had that as well, but they could have done it a bunch of different ways, though. They could have set up, they could have created a dealership like on you know, miracle mile in every city, but they didn't, right? They thought about it very differently in terms of where their customer was. You talked earlier about, you you rattle off a whole bunch of tactics, but you said that's not a strategy. Mm -hmm. We see it in innovation. We see it in a lot of the companies who try to compete in the most competitive marketplace the world has ever seen. Talk about the difference between those who just throw all these things against the wall. I'm supposed to be omni-channel. I'm supposed to all these things that you've described, what's the difference between those who kind of throw it against the ball versus those who really get it? It's simple, and I'm very clear about this in the book. The first thing that you have to do is what Brian Cornell did, what Hubert Jolie did, what Walmart didn't do. 
you have to decide which of the six C's and in what quantities are important to your customer. Have to. And you have to do that in what I call unconstrained thinking. You have to stop thinking about how hard it's going to be for or expensive to, silly example, but replace all of our gas hoses, right? If you start there and you're like, yeah, but it's going to be so expensive, you're never going to get where you need to be. You have to throw out all of your limitations. You have to forget about what your balance sheet looks like. You have to forget about what your sales trajectory looks like. You just have to decide what it is your customers want so that you can differentiate and, and build loyalty. Then the next thing you have to do is you have to go all the way back down and connect it to your limitations because, because most companies don't have a bottomless supply of capital to invest in, in, in a, a retail strategy. Once you've done that, you have a pretty good idea of the gap, right? If you're going to offer last mile delivery, you know your gross margins are going to go down. You know your EBITDA is going to be challenged because those products and services that you're delivering to the home are going to cost you more money, but you're doing it because you believe that 10 years from now, that will be important to you in terms of surviving and thriving. So after you go through that, you have to reflect all of that realistically in your P&L. And then I, I, I say, then you have to bring back your limitations. Right. I, I, one of the things I say in my book is I remember the day that I um, realized I was going to be more likely to own season tickets to the Red Sox than play for them. Right. That's that's a very important realization. I won't hold that against you. Um, <laughs> have you looked at the standings lately, by the way? Oh, please. This is like, a, yeah, it's fine. It's early. It's April. We talk a lot about the idea of understanding human experience. You kind of know it when you see it, that, that, that they, they get me experience. They understand me. I just whether it's an ad that just spoke to me because they understood who I was or a retail experience or anything else. How do you learn with this highly fragmented world of who I am? How do I find these people? Well, you already have them. I mean, if you're starting a business from scratch, then you have to do something a little bit differently. But, but presumably everyone listening to this podcast already has a business that has customers. And so, um, I mean, that's where, that's where you come in. That's where a lot of work is, needs to be done. But it's not very difficult to listen to your customers. And the other people that you need to listen to are if you are in the brick and mortar business or any kind of a service economy, restaurants, what have you, you really do have to listen to your frontline associates. That's the thing that Hubert did so brilliantly is he didn't just do customer research and focus groups and so forth, but he actually went and worked in stores. He talked to people. He, he, he embedded himself in the details of how the business worked. So that he could understand all of the things that were, it's easy to say, put the customer first. And then when you have to fill out five pieces of paper in triplicate, if you're going to offer a price modification, that's not the equivalent. That's like, you know, it's what we talked about earlier. It's the customer is always right, but not really. We're limited in time and uh, we could probably do a whole episode on the current economy. But do, do you have any quick thoughts given that <laughs> you call this the retail economy? And there's such volatility right now between high inflation, low unemployment, uh, a possible recession. Yeah. You know, we just saw uh, the GDP dropped uh, in the first quarter. Any off-the-cuff thoughts on yep. how these two ideas of a retail economy and the real economy connect? I don't think there's any connection. I really don't. I think the retail consumer started emerging about a decade ago. I think the meat the retail consumer is here in full force now. And I think 10 years from now, it's going to become even more obvious. Um, and I think that applies in good times and bad, except to say that in bad times, it becomes even more difficult to attract the Mies because they are 
pulling their horns in on consumption broadly. So okay. it means that if you're going to be a customer, you know, if you're going to be an act category expert, expertise matters now more than ever. If you're going to be a curator, curation matters now more than ever because you have to you have to be able to attract them. Well, it's well harder that's and harder. I, I'm uh, that's where I'm good. Kind of challenge your premise that they're not connected. I think they're highly connected. In they're connected, but the, yeah. the 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 brands and the companies who get me, yeah, are more likely to be resilient in difficult economic times. That's true. I the, would agree with the, that the, statement. Right. So so your book is more important today than it was yesterday because the economy is turbulent. So I'm trying to help you here. See, this is why you're so good at your job, Rob. Like that's exactly what I should have said. What I should have said is what you just said. So exactly. yes, let's go. Let's go with that. <laughs> um, I, I could go on. I have about a dozen more questions I didn't get to, but we're going to do the final lightning round, which we call spill your guts. Oh boy. Here we go. Okay. Let's spill it. What's the first brand could be a retailer that you remember from your childhood and why is it memorable? Building 19 and a half. That might even be in your book. It is in my book. If anyone has ever been in a building 19 and a half, it's long gone, then you know why it's the first, first brand that comes to mind. There's some fun stories in the book about it. Other than the book you just wrote, is there a book or movie that best represents your life, your journey? <laughs> yes. Um, Basically, any Mr. Bean movie that's ever been made. That pretty much is my life. <laughs> there you go. Okay. You, you talked about your job as a consultant, and yeah. now you're an author. So you have a, yeah. you have a dual career. Yeah. If you're talking to a child, how do you describe what you do? That's easy. I'm a doctor, but for companies. Are you a doctor that helps? <laughs> Are you hurt I mean, me? gener generally speaking, that's what we want our doctors to do. They're not all yeah. perfect at it, but that's what we want them yeah. to do. Yes. You, you've obviously been very thoughtful about the six strategies and a lot of um, pointers for business leaders. But if you had to summarize one piece of advice for a business leader who wants their brand and their company to be gutsy and succeed in this crazy world, what is it? Work with people who will tell you the truth. Just too many sycophants in the world. And, and if you really need to be gutsy, even if you don't want to hear it, you need, and it might be something you need to hear. So just make sure you surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth. I guess build, building, I'm going to build on your quote in your lightning round to spill your guts. And there you go. Let's spill our guts. It's listen to me. Listen to people who work for you who will, who will tell you the truth, but also truly listen to the customer. I'm going to, yeah, very much. I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to do what I just did, but I'm doing it anyway. I love it. All right. The, the, the last one, we do have a gutsiest brand playlist that huh. we're capturing for every one of our guests. And uh, we'd love to know what your song is for that playlist. I'm going to tell you what my song is, but I guarantee you, if you spent 30 seconds trying to guess what my song is, it would come to your mind. So do you want to take two seconds and just see if it comes to mind or you want me to just tell you? My mind goes to Bruce Springsteen all the time. They would be born, That's to, fine. born to run. <laughs> yeah, but not me because you know me and you've known me for a long time. So same genre, Tom Petty, but my song is I Won't Back Down. There you go. Standing behind bold ideas. <laughs> hey, th this has been super. I think uh, our audience will learn a lot from this. Thank and you. I do encourage everyone, even though Joel gave us a lot of perspective straight out of the book, read the book. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on.
Well, Rob, that was a very fun episode. I feel like we could have done an entire series with Joel. Yeah, and it's funny. I think Joel would probably argue that he doesn't want to do a series because he wants us to buy his book. That's true. <laughs> uh, that being said, I, I agree. And I think, uh, as I was thinking about, there's just something about retail overall, which I think is universal. Um, and that, you know, in varying degrees, we all shop. Every single person shops. So I think um, we probably could have gone on and on and on about our favorite stores and and the stores that um, and retailers, be it online or brick and mortar, who are no longer our favorites and probably all we could have definitely had examples upon examples. So um, I think the universality of retail um, and the fact that it's such a part of both our everyday lives with the things we buy at a grocery store or drugstore or a Target, all the way to the really big purchases like an automobile or a wedding dress or whatever, it's got such broad appeal. Yeah, I agree. And as a avid shopper, I love when things are customizable or I feel like I'm listened to, it, you know, growing up and moving into my career, I read, I think it, it was called the Nordstrom customer experience or something. And I just was so excited by that. So the idea of Mitel is fascinating to me. And you guys were talking in the interview a little bit about companies that didn't do really well moving into this new economy and those that did. And you said those that maybe are more resilient are already customer focused. They have a deep understanding of, of who they're building or creating for. Um, and it got me thinking, what would Joel say about Abercrombie and Fitch? There is a wildly popular documentary on Netflix right now called White Hot. It's all about the empire that is Abercrombie and they really took a hit. They were creating a lifestyle similar to Ralph Lauren, like you guys talked about. They they set the tone. You want to buy this. This is what's going to make you cool and elite. And they were happy with being elite. But then things changed. Cool changed. And people were like, wait a minute, you're kind of biased. I don't like this. And things just weren't going well. So I'm wondering, what's our takeaway in the Mitel economy for companies like that that need to rebuild and kind of grasp a new way of doing things? Yeah, it's, I think it's such a fascinating point you're making and would have loved to have spoken to Joel about it. I think my takeaway from reading his book and from the conversation is the ability for people to be agile, the ability for people, companies to recognize that what got us here doesn't necessarily get us there. And so I think that's probably interesting. And then thinking about Abercrombie, the notion that... Um, they probably had a segmentation that says all people want to be like this. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what's probably happened with the generation that they've historically appealed to is that they've become more individualistic and that what their values are has probably adjusted. And Abercrombie had this formula that sounded so right and worked so well for so long. And perhaps they did create what cool is. And now in a retail environment where the consumer is king or queen, um, they didn't follow along and yeah. they didn't adjust to the values and what cool is today. Um, or maybe what's cool for some is not cool for others. That's a good point. Let's talk about that, that saying that you just said, the customer is king or queen. Can you elaborate on that? Like what is, what has changed? I feel like that saying has been around forever, but maybe it actually means something today. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's interesting because Joel in his book has a quote from John Wanamaker, who was a retailer um, over 100 years ago, 
um, that says when a customer enters my store, he is king. Notice it was he back then. <laughs> but uh, uh, and I do think companies have talked the talk of being um, shopper centric, customer centric forever. But I think his point is really valid that if you were a merchant, you controlled what was on the shelf. You controlled what my selection was. You controlled the price. You controlled all these things. The big point that Joel makes is that there's been a massive transition to um, people having much more control. And what's interesting is for everyone who thinks that the retail revolution is all about e-commerce, while e-commerce has been a strategy and a tactic and a channel for people that's definitely changed the way we all shop. His point is that isn't the revolution. It's a disruption. It's not the revolution. The revolution is all about putting information in people's hands that give them much more power to compare things, to choose things in the way they want. Um, so that truly should enable people to have much more control of what they buy, when they buy it, how they buy it, who they buy it from, whether it be buying it from someone that has values like me, whether it be buying it from whoever is the lowest price without gimmicks. Um, as a consumer, we definitely have a lot more information that lets us make better choice. Now, one of the questions I have is while that's true and while some retailers, be it online or, or bricks and mortar, are clearly taking advantage of it, my question is, are we really all experiencing as customers that statement? So the best retailers have figured it out and do appeal mm. to us and create an emotional connection that creates habits and creates loyalty. I still think there's a long way to go, which I guess is why he, he published the book, that here are some retailers who are doing it really well. And if you want to survive and grow in the future, you better do it too. That's true. And I think one of the things that we as consumers can really get into is feedback. And I know that's important here at Gut Check is online feedback, online reviews, and, and really understanding what people are saying about products out in the world. But I myself am what is known as a Yelp elite. And that just means I do a lot of feedback about restaurants. And they're amazing. You, you, I have a community on there of people. We chat back and forth of best places to go in different cities. And there are a lot of restaurants that actually take the time to read that and engage with the community. And you can tell which ones do for sure, yeah. because it's a, it's a whole experience. And I think it's interesting that one of his, his six C's is community and how community is built uh, between retailers. And, the, and I think he kind of incorporates restaurants in that as well. And to me, in many ways, the restaurants and other who, others who get feedback respond directly. That's great. The more important thing is that they take the feedback whether they say something online or not, and do they really adjust the experience? Yeah, apply because it. Ultimately, this is all about a great experience. I loved curation and how there are certain retailers who kind of take all the component parts and just kind of, you can't describe it always, but they get all the parts right in a way that you, just, you have a feeling that they get me. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I, I'd say is, I appreciate the fact that he described his six C's not as a formula, but as the ingredients and each company needs to determine and each brand needs to determine which of these six C's do I leverage to create the most um, connection with the people I'm trying to serve, which is exactly what we talk about in Gutsiest Brands is that there's the DNA of the Gutsiest Brands, which we think are four core elements. We're not suggesting that there is a mathematic equation. We're suggesting that you better incorporate these four elements and figure out how they enable you to connect as a Gutsy brand to the consumers you're trying to serve. 
Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Gutsiest Brands podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider sharing our episode with a friend and leaving us a five-star review. See you next time.